I'm here, and this morning we're going to talk about, uh, what's the title that I gave it? Table, the subversive act of eating together. So as our brilliant video that we made, uh, well Dan made it actually, but um, that we made ends with, when is a meal actually more than a meal? And today we're going to look at the power of the table and of eating together and how meals in general and one meal in particular are potent and powerful manifestations of the kingdom of God and the work of Jesus. It might seem like a bit of an oversell, but bear with me because I'll explain it as we go. And there's two reasons why I want to look at that this morning. One, it's good for us to understand the power of a simple meal, the act of eating with other people and how that can be a means of bringing the kingdom of God to people and places. And secondly, because as you heard, we're going to be initiating table once a month here as a church, uh, which is not because we can't think of anything else to do, but because we actually think it's a very important thing to do as a church. And so I want us to understand some of the why behind that. So who likes to eat? Who likes food? Okay, yeah, fairly unanimous, isn't it? Okay, most of us love food. We don't just like to eat, actually, we need to eat, don't we? Uh, If you don't eat, um, you get yourself into all sorts of trouble in the end, as the breatharians find out. So, um, so eating is, is essential to us, okay? It, it nourishes us and it sustains us. But the thing about eating is that it's also pleasurable as well. Um, you know, sometimes we Christians, we get a little bit... Uh, we, try, we, tr- we treat everything aesthetically. Uh, we feel like this, this kind of... It's wrong to enjoy things or take pleasure in things, at least some streams of, of Christianity. But I think things are made for our pleasure, including food. I mean, just look at the sizes, shapes and colours and textures and tastes that is involved in food, yeah? I mean, if, it real, if we weren't meant to enjoy it, God could have just been very utilitarian about the whole thing and made cardboard nutritious, yeah? Couldn't he? Just, just eat it. It's got everything you need to sustain life. It tastes bland, it's horrible, but just, but just eat it. But he didn't. The food that he created is incredible in its diversity and its flavour and its textures. And it's a, it, food is a, is a joy. But, but food, not just food in and of itself, the act of eating food is also pleasurable. It is also meant to be a joy. Um, when we celebrate things, anniversaries, birthdays, weddings, um, graduations, other special events, what do we almost invariably tend to do? We tend to eat, don't we? We tend to celebrate with food. There's something instinctive about it. We're going to celebrate. Food will be a part of that celebration. Okay? When um, we want to connect with other people at a deeper level, what is the thing that we do? We say, would you like to come over for a meal? Or when you're dating, you know, you start off with coffee, don't you? You start off with coffee and you only move to the meal if you think it's going somewhere. Because, because A, because you don't want to waste money on someone that you're not going to see again. <laughs> Secondly, because we, we, we have this kind of innate understanding that there is an intimacy involved in breaking bread with someone. To sit down across a table with someone and break bread with someone. And I'm not talking about you know, grabbing a quick bite to eat in the food hall in, between, in a break. You know, I'm talking about actually inviting someone into your home and having a meal together. There is a, it's an act of intimacy and a way of connecting with people on a different level. But we're kind of losing the art of eating together. We're losing the intentionality behind that. If you were to watch shows 
TV shows, you know, sitcoms and, and stuff from the 60s and, uh, 50s and 60s and even maybe the 70s. One of the things you'll notice is that the family is always sitting around having breakfast together. They're always sitting around having dinner together, you know. These days, okay, we seem to pride ourselves on how compact we can make our food so we can take it with us. You know, I even heard one of the, one of the CEOs of one of the big supermarket companies saying, this is a couple of years ago, he said, our aim is to replace the home-cooked meal. Right? Our aim is to replace the home-cooked meal because that's the way our life is going. And we kind of we think we're really clever about that. You know, we're so, uh, oh, look at us. We're so busy and so clever that we don't have time to actually sit down and have a meal with people. And we treat it like it's actually a good thing. And, and you know, it is no way to live. Due to the craziness of our lives, you know, if you think about it, breakfast has been reduced to a box that you stick a straw in and slurp in the car on the way to work. Desk is usually a sandwich or a sushi that you manage to grab. Uh, lunch is, is usually a sushi or a sandwich and you eat it at your desk while you're still working. And dinner is something you're either, either able to whip up or order and woof down before you have to go out again. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? Okay, that's the way things have got for us these days, okay? And the upshot of it is that we are physically being overfed but relationally undernourished. That's what's happening to us. We're physically overfed because we're eating all this stuff that you can just bung in a microwave or comes wrapped up or, or whatever. I had the funniest thing happen the other day. Heather and I are you now running around to the hospital. Um, we, we dropped the kids off. We were tearing around everywhere. This is a case in point. And um, she said, look, I'm, I'm just going to stop at the cafe on the way up, grab a coffee and grab a quick bite to eat. I'll order you something that we can take with us. She ordered me an avocado smash. Have you ever seen one of those things? How do you eat an avocado smash okay, in a car. <laughs> it's a knife and fork deal. So I've got this styrofoam box on my lap as I'm driving up there thinking, what am I supposed to do with this, okay? You know, someone needs to come up with a, a space food way of eating that type of thing, all right? Anyway, so the upside is we're, we're, we're physically overfed but we're relationally undernourished, okay? We're always eating but we're rarely eating together. And everyone's banging on about being careful about what we eat, which is fine and fair enough, and it's good, okay? But no one's addressing the issues of how, where, and when, and with whom we eat, which is equally important as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, we are more than just bodies, aren't we? We are, we are souls as well. And just as our bodies need nourishment, our souls need nourishing as well. And that is to be found in relationship and connection with other people. Now, Jesus knew the power of meals. Meals were such a part of his MO of ministry, okay, that, that commentators have actually said that Jesus ate his way through the Gospels, okay? And it wasn't just that he ate a lot, it was who he ate with that was the thing that got people, okay? Jesus used meals to reveal the kingdom of God, to show people in a very powerful, practical and tangible way that everyone was invited to the table, and have you ever noticed how much ministry Jesus did around a dinner table? You read through the Gospels, you'll be amazed. There's at least four passages, um, uh, four meals that take up 13 passages in the Gospels alone. Okay? And that's not all. You've got him eating at Pharisees' houses a couple of times, one where he gets gatecrashed by someone, with Zacchaeus, Matthew's party, and pretty much anyone and everyone. In fact, but they're only the recorded incidents. Jesus obviously did it far more than that because he had a reputation as someone who only drank and ate. Remember he had a little interaction with the Pharisees where he said to them, look, you say to John the Baptist, you know, you say, look, he, doesn't, he comes and he doesn't eat, we ate locust and honey. Like, okay. um, 
he doesn't eat and he doesn't drink, he's got a demon. But the son of man, me, I, I come, and I'm, I come both drinking and eating, and you say I'm a glutton and a, and a drunkard, like, like make up your mind, what, what do you want? But you don't get that type of reputation as a drunkard and a glutton unless you're seen to be doing a lot of eating and drinking. And then, of course, we have Jesus having a final and incredibly important meal with his disciples right before his crucifixion. Now, it's really important for us to understand why Jesus did this. It wasn't because he just couldn't think of anything else to do and it just seemed like, oh, I'll just sit down and have a meal. Okay? There, was, there was an intentionality about what Jesus was actually doing. These meals that we see in the gospel over and over and over and over again, okay, they are not only intentional, but they're not original. Okay? They're pointing to something and they're a continuation of something. In the Old Testament, Israel's year was punctuated by feasts, a number of feasts. And all of these feasts were characterised by celebration, reflection, remembrance, rejoicing. Time and time again in the middle of these feasts, the people of Israel are commanded to rejoice and to remember God's goodness to them. Okay? That's what they were there. They were structured in as part of their year and they formed the rhythm of that year for Israel. Time to stop and to celebrate God's goodness and what he had done for them. And Jesus came as Israel's Messiah. Jesus came to both embody and to be all that Israel was supposed to be for the world. Everything that Israel was supposed to be for the world, that's what Jesus came to do. And in that capacity, as Israel's Messiah, he came to embody the joy and the celebration and the justice and the invitation for the whole world that Israel was to have been to the whole world. And that's just what he was. Just look at the people he ate with. Jesus lived in a very structured, socially structured world, and yet he broke down every single one of those barriers and ate with a whole bunch of people that he shouldn't have eaten with to the degree that they said, Jesus is a friend of sinners because he ate with all the wrong people. And you've got to ask yourself, how many lives were changed through the simple act of eating with people? How many lives were changed? How many people were brought into the kingdom just because Jesus chose to eat with them? And if that's what Jesus was, if he embodied feasting and celebration and joy and invitation and inclusiveness, then shouldn't his church do the same thing? Shouldn't we be the same as our Jesus? And it's, uh, the unfortunate thing is it's not what we're usually known for. Okay? Churches are usually known for two things, one being fun suckers, okay, and the other for being incredibly exclusive. Yeah? So, so we're known for not enjoying ourselves, quite the contrary. You know, enjoying yourself is a sin. All right? um, you know, you've got to be really careful about that. Secondly... I mean, I'm being extreme here, but we have encountered this type of thing. So we're, no, we're not known for what we, you know, we're known for not enjoying ourselves. And secondly, we're known for who we keep away from the table, not who we invite to the table. And the contrast with Jesus' nature and his ministry couldn't be sharper. We underestimate the power of the table and of eating and celebrating and the way of bringing the kingdom of God. I love what Rob Bell says. He says, I'm learning that the church has nothing to say to the world until it throws better parties. Why? Well, I'll talk about that in a second. So it's not surprising that in one of his last acts, Jesus should have left us a meal. But not just any meal, it was his meal. Jesus took the Jewish Passover with all its symbolism and with all its backstory and he gave it a new form 
and he gave it a new meaning. So instead of them celebrating the exodus from Egypt, he told us that we should now from this point on celebrate this meal in memory of him and anticipation of seeing him again. So this meal then took the shape of looking back to what God had done through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, and all that he accomplished through his death and resurrection, okay? and then a looking forward to the day when all that that resurrection had accomplished would be finally realised, the, the restoration of all creation, when all of that would be fulfilled and come under the loving reign of Jesus. And so the early church took this took his modelling and took his command very seriously and they began to meet and eat together regularly. Like Acts says, they, they broke bread in each other's homes and they enjoyed the favour of all the people and the Lord added daily um, to their number, those who were being saved. And they had their love feasts. And these love feasts were not communion as we know it now. They were not little cups with little pieces of bread that we take in rows facing the back of each other's heads. Okay? This was not how the early church celebrated communion. They broke bread in each other's homes. They were meals, full meals, full of laughter, full of joy, full of celebration, full of reflection, full of remembrance and anticipation. These things would have been fun to be at. Wolfgang Simpson, who runs the House Church Network, um, makes a point of saying that the Lord's Supper was more a substantial supper with a symbolic meaning than a symbolic supper with a substantial meaning, which is what we've made it. I think he's part right. I think it's actually a substantial supper with a substantial meaning. I, th I think that the, the love feast, the communion, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it, is jam-packed with meaning and potency and power. So just as Jesus took the Jewish Passover feast and gave it new form and gave it new meaning, as Christianity spread out into the Roman Empire, the early followers of Jesus, the early followers of the way, decided that they would hijack the Roman feasts and turn them into Jesus feasts and give them new meaning as well. And so Roman feasts were very popular and they're not the type of thing that we typically are led to believe they were, like they were drunken orgies. Yeah, there were some people in certain places where you know, the Bacchanalians, for example, you know, they would really get carried away and they would, they would have their vomitoriums and stuff. It sounds so appealing, doesn't it? Um, but, but by and large, Roman feasts were very ordered, very structured affairs, and they were, they were moderated by someone, and if you got drunk, you were usually sent home because you were ruining the evening for everyone else, okay? Wouldn't it be great to have some of the, someone around at some of our parties? Okay, but, um, you know, so you were sent home, so they were very, very ordered affair, and they were very popular, but the thing with the Roman feasts was it wasn't just a get-together. These Roman feasts actually were, were a very, very clever way of controlling and containing the social structure of Rome and also controlling and maintaining and consolidating the central power of their gods and Caesar in particular, who was their chief god. So it wasn't let's just get together and have a meal. There was actually a much bigger purpose to this that kept everything in check and everything in play. And during that feast, okay, these Roman feasts, they were held in homes and they were invitation only. So what that meant was you could only invite people, though, who were actually on the same social strata as you. So if I was a merchant, I could only invite other merchants. If I was a chariot mechanic, I could only invite other chariot mechanics. You know what I mean? Depended on where you were in the social strata as to who could actually come to your feast and whose feast you could go to. Again, a way of making sure that the social structure of Rome stayed intact. 
Everyone knew who was at top, the patricians, and everyone knew who the plebeians were at the bottom, okay? And that's these feasts were a way of doing that. And during the feast, which actually had three parts, which was a, you know, let's get together and talk about the week, you know, I don't really like what Nero's doing at the moment, his policies suck, you know, etc., etc. Food would lubricate those conversations. Then they would have a toast in the middle to their gods, okay, and to Caesar, and then they would have an informed discussion around a particular topic that was moderated. So they're a very structured thing. So what they would do in this second part was they would stop their conversation and they would toast their gods and they would give thanks to their gods and they would reaffirm their allegiance to Caesar, okay? So when these Christians came along, they said, we'll have that, thank you very much. And they took it, these Roman feasts, and they made them about Jesus, and just in case we get a little bit iffy about, you know, oh, come on, why are we t- touching pagan things? A lot of the stuff that we find in Scripture is not originally Christian. I-, I hate to tell you this, in the New Testament in particular. There is no under name given under heaven by which man can be saved. That's a Roman thing. Because the name that was given by which man could be saved was that of Caesar. So the Christians took that and they said, no, blow that, it's Jesus. King of king and Lord of lords, Caesar. Christians took it and said, no, Jesus is king of king and Lord of Lords. Can you see any argument that Christianity isn't actually political falls down on this basis? Okay? Any, any, any argument that we should stay out of politics? This was some of the most subversive stuff you could ever get. They hijacked pretty much every Roman term, everything that the Romans had, and just put Jesus in its place. Yeah? You with me? Okay. So, what was that? It was a good idea. Why reinvent the wheel? You know, like, here it is. This stuff's already happening. And so they hijacked these Roman feasts that were to maintain Roman social structure and allegiance and, and consolidate power in Caesar. And they said, let's actually make this about Jesus. So they became very dangerous meals, very subversive meals, because they broke down that social structure and they instituted the kingdom structure, which was nothing like the Roman structure. So the Romans had a thing called Amicidia, that you had a household, okay? And in that household, which would include your slaves, that defined, that defined your world. One of the great biggest accusations against the Christians of the time was that they were ruining Roman amicidia. They were breaking down those distinctions because it was no longer your household that was your household. It was anyone who followed Jesus. And so you have this letter in the New Testament. Some of you are familiar with it. It's only one page. Letter of Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon, who owns a slave called Onesimus. Onesimus has run away. And Paul urges him to take him back, not as a slave, but as a what? But as a brother. Now, this did the Romans' head in. Because because we only hang out with our own kind. We only break bread with our own kind. These Christians were inviting any and all sorts of people to their table, irrespective of their social class or station. Okay? Kingdom order was being established. And secondly, they were pledging allegiance to Jesus and not to Caesar. They were maintaining that he was the true God. He was the only God and not Caesar. And this is why these meals became incredibly dangerous and subversive. So how is eating subversive today? How can the meals that we eat make a difference today? Let let me just quickly go through that. One, they create connection and community. And today that makes that a very counter-cultural act. You know, we live in an increasingly isolated and individualistic world. Our suburbs are bulging at the seams and yet we're more isolated than we've ever been. That's what the statistics are telling us. People are around us all the time and yet we actually lack any real connection with people. 
The stories and the statistics are telling us that one of the great maladies that is striking us in the Western world at the moment is an overwhelming and pervading sense of loneliness. We're not only fenced off from our neighbours, we're zoned off from our families. All you need is a device and an internet connection to know that. Okay? How many times can you be sitting in your house, the whole family be home, but everyone is in their room? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, and why? Because we're on these things. We don't need to engage and interact anymore. And you can even be in the same room with someone and not be present. Okay, one of the great criticisms I get at home is, will you get off your phone? Okay, because Heather will be watching a show on television. I'm not necessarily interested in that. I like to read the news or my Twitter feeds. But I can sit there for two hours reading my Twitter feeds, sitting next to her and not a word has passed between us because I'm on my phone. My bad, I'm just admitting to that, all right? Okay? But that's, that's the way the world has gone for us, okay? This is the world that we've created. It's the world we have seemed to want, okay? We've created our big anonymous malls with our online shopping communities. We've got 2,000 social media friends, but absolutely no real friends. Does anyone notice that? Okay? We've got all these people that are followers and friends on social media, but how many real friends do you actually have? How many people do you actually connect? We're so connected and yet so disconnected. And what we're finding, what, what people are finding now, is people are saying it's not working anymore and we want more. And one of the big trends that's happening, particularly in the US, is a lot of the big malls are starting to close down because they're not getting any business. And the reason they're not getting any business is because people are saying we want local. We want somewhere where we are known and where we know people. We don't want these big anonymous places anymore. And when you come across terms like online community or church online, they are oxymoronic terms, okay? You do not have online community. You do not have church online. Community and church are flesh and blood propositions, right? Okay? You, you can't have community online. You can't have community and church because that's people, and people have flesh and blood, and we need to press up against flesh and blood, don't we? Yeah? Are we here today? Okay. Got to help me out here. Don't forget I've had a very sad week. All right? Okay. No, not patronising. No, it's hard. Okay. So we've got to, we've got to realise that, you know, the convenience that we, we claim to have wanted and the ease with which we claim to be able to connect is not serving us at all, okay? Now, we could go with the flow in that and we could throw up our hands and we go, that's just the way it is, this is, or we could do something to try and turn the tide, if not for the whole world, at least for us, at least for the people we know. I mean, we can make some difference along the way, can't we? And that's why we are stepping up the opportunity for that type of connection by hosting table every month, because these meals speak into that culture of isolation and individualism. They invite us and others to, to come together and they provide a simple step for us to come and meet with other people and invite other people to come and meet other people as well, to intentionally connect and to get to know people and to get to be known as well. Secondly, they speak of a better world to come. These meals, this you might think I'm overthinking this, but this is true. These meals, the way Jesus instituted these meals, they speak of a better way to come. I mean, we live in an increasingly segregated and polarised world driven by fear and mistrust of people who are not like us. 
And Jesus lived in a segregated world, okay? There were strong social, religious and political boundaries that were important and had to be maintained, just like the Roman world. And everyone knew who you could eat with and who you needed to avoid. But Jesus ignored those things. He busted down those boundaries and he hung out with anyone and everyone. And see, food is a commonality for us because as human beings, we all need it. And, and eating food together reminds us of our commonality as human beings as well. Don't forget what Paul says in, in, in Galatians where he says there is no longer slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Because in terms of our, it doesn't mean there are no distinctions or differences between us, but what it means is in, in terms of our standing before God and as recipients of the blessing of God and all that God has to offer, there is no distinction. We're all on a level playing field. None of those distinctions count for anything. We're all one and we're all the same. It doesn't matter if you earn a million dollars and it doesn't matter if you're on welfare. We all stand the same before God in Jesus. Okay? That's what these meals are saying. When we sit around the same table, we are sending a powerful message that we are all one. There are no distinctions. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter your education level. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. It doesn't matter how many homes you own or don't own or how, many, how good your car is, how crap your car is. Okay, it doesn't matter because we are all one and we are all on the same playing field. That's why these meals are important. One day, the Bible says, look, they're a prophetic act, right? One day, the Bible says, every nation, tribe and tongue will come to the wedding feast of the Lamb where they will celebrate together. Yeah? We're all going to be around the same table for eternity. Wouldn't it be good to get used to that now? Hey? Do some warm-ups. Start inviting people over that you don't like. Okay? If anyone gets an invitation today, be aware. Um, I'm joking. Um, it, was, it was like, I remember once, it was the worst thing I ever did. Um, there's that passage in James that's like, you know, don't, don't, don't invite people over to dinner who can do something for you. Invite the people that mean nothing to you and you get nothing out of them. I said, that's what we should do. And then immediately thought, you know, if you get an invitation today, how are you going to feel? <laughs> you know, oh no, people think I'm useless and hopeless and I'm bottom of the pile. Um, anyway, my mistake. All right, so one day. So the church, the church is meant to be a preview and a bringer of that future. That's, that's what the church is. The church is, is the preview of the world that is to come. The world that God will ultimately prevail over. The world that he is creating. We are meant to be a preview, a manifestation of that world that is to come. And sitting around a table with people of all different backgrounds and persuasions and beliefs, okay, um, ways of life, it, it doesn't matter. Showing that they all have a place at the table, that everyone is invited because this is the world that God is going to create that is really important. I remember at Rhythms, our op shop out at Seven Hills, it's now the Restore, um, we used to, once a month, we used to do our love feasts. And we used to set out a table, and the deal was you bring some food, physical food, and then you bring some spiritual food. You bring something that you think will bless us, that God has given you to bless us with. And those were some of the most powerful nights that we had because we would eat together. And at this table, there would be people who were struggling with addictions, um, you know, alcohol or drugs, welfare recipients, sitting with people who, you know, university-educated business owners and stuff. And it was just, it was a beautiful picture of what the world is going to be like. 
And, and some of the stuff that people would bring, some people who knew Jesus, some people who didn't know Jesus, some people who knew Jesus but didn't know that they didn't know they knew Jesus, um, you know, all, they were all sitting there and they would share this stuff. And for me, it was like, I would just sit there some nights and I really wouldn't say much on those nights because I just wanted to take it all in and to watch and go, this is the type of world that God's creating. The, the type of world where these distinctions don't matter. No matter how much the media or the political parties or you know, the people with the agendas try and drive wedges between us all the time based on some, you know, either money or orientation or beliefs or whatever it has, the kingdom overcomes these barriers. The kingdom overcomes these barriers. And, and we, the church, have an obligation to manifest that out in the here and now. One day it's going to never be an issue. Right now it is, but in the meantime we can manifest what that looks like now. That's why Jesus and James, as I said, they, they both talk about when you're going to invite people to dinner, don't just invite people like you. Don't just invite people who can do something for you. Go out of your way to bring, bring in people who are different. Go out of your way to, to meet people who aren't like you, who can't do anything for you, because in that you are bringing the kingdom. And finally, I'll finish with this. With these meals, they tell a better story. They do. They tell a much better story. And our world needs a better story right now. Jesus said, I will not drink this cup with you again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom. Paul said, for as often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This present act of eating somehow holds together the past, Jesus' death and resurrection, and the promise of an incredible future when all of creation will be made new as a result of that first fruit of resurrection of Jesus. And this is so core to who we are as a church. This is why we call ourselves Restore Church. We don't buy into the story that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and it's just getting worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse and if we just hold out, there'll be less and less and less of us, of course, because it's all about quality, not quantity when it comes to God. Um, and there's going to be less and less and less of us and you know the Antichrist is going to rise up and then we're all going to get our heads cut off and go and be with Jesus. I don't believe that, all right? It's rubbish. The Bible doesn't teach that stuff either, okay? And if you want to check that out with me, come and talk to me because we'll go through chapter and verse if you like about that stuff. That is not the Bible story at all. The story the Bible tells has a very different trajectory, that with the resurrection of Jesus, the new creation came and it is growing and growing and one day will be fulfilled, okay? That is what is going on, okay? So the story we celebrate celebrates a much better story, one that gives us hope in the here and now. Not the, yes, I'm not saying let's pretend bad things aren't happening. Bad things are happening but equally good things are happening too. Unfortunately, our media trains us to look at the bad things. We need to train ourselves to look for the good things, the God things that are going on in the world, okay? It gives us hope in the here and now, and it gives us incentive to keep trying to make the world a better place because that is what God is actually doing. We're not working against the grain here. We're working with God in making the world a better place because ultimately the world will be a better place because Jesus will reign over it in forever. Amen? Okay, so that's where all that's going. He is making all things new now, and one day everything will be made new. So we have this thing on our website, just a little blurb I want to read because it's, it's important to us. When we talk about ourselves, we say we are people who see the world in a certain way. We believe God created a good world that's broken right now, but he hasn't given up on it. He's very much to, committed to restoring it to the way he intended it to be. And we are driven by hope because we know that the story isn't over. It's broken, yes, but it can be repaired. And possibilities exist everywhere because God has come to restore all creation 
through the work of Jesus. And that is what we celebrate when we celebrate the Jesus meal. It is our way of reminding ourselves that one day we will drink this cup, we will eat this meal anew in a fully restored creation. That's the story we tell when we take that. That's why meals are important. Now, contextualization is important. Jesus took the Jewish Passover feast and he made it his own. The early Christians took the Roman feast and made it their own. Why don't we take the barbecue? Hey? Why don't, why don't we? The thing about us Christians sometimes is we get hung up on the form rather than the meaning. And we say we have to do it like this. So, so I've been in churches where I've had people leave because we drink out of multiple cups rather than one cup. Missing the point, all right? The means is almost immaterial. It's the message and it is the meaning that we are wanting to convey through what we do. So why not hijack the barbecue and make it about new creation? Make it about Jesus, okay? Pizza ovens. Pizza ovens. Make it about connection community. Make it about restoration. Celebrating all that is good in the world because we have a lot to celebrate, don't we? God has blessed us and he continues to bless us. He is a good God. There is good in the world. Why don't we, we just transform a meal? Now, here's the thing. Here's, I'm going to leave you with a challenge and I'm going to leave you with a couple of challenges over, over the next few times that I speak, whenever that might be at this stage. Okay? But one of the challenges is this, right? How many times a week do you eat? 21 at least? 42 if you may, but 21, right? At least seven of those are dinners, Yes. Could you not use one meal, one meal out of seven for this purpose? Could you not redeem one meal? Instead of just, you know, woofing something down or ordering pizza or, you know, whatever it is, find a night where you're all going to be home and you've got time and make that meal count for something. Sit with your family and engage. Invite another family over. Invite your neighbours over. Invite someone completely different over. And make that meal count for the kingdom. Who's up for that challenge? Yeah? So, so next week, when I ask every single person here, did you do that? Your answer to me will be? Yes. Yeah. It's like, you know you have to be here at 9.30. Yes. Okay. So next week we have to be here at 10. No. You all have to be here at 9. You're all forbidden to turn up at 10, okay? So when I ask you all next week, did you use one meal this week? Doesn't have to be fancy, okay? You don't have to knock, you don't have to go overboard, okay? It's, you know, but did you use a meal this week as a way of bringing a manifestation and the message of the kingdom? You will say to me, yes, we did, all right? And I will hear the stories about what's coming out of that, won't I? Yeah? Yep. GIF's going to do it. <laughs> All right? So I know it may seem like, mm, yeah, maybe you're infusing too much. No, I, I actually believe in the power of our tables. I believe in the power of eating together. And I think, isn't it incredibly economically wonderful of God to, to be able to use something that we do routinely, but, but to use it in a different way, yeah? So I, I, I challenge you, let, let, seriously, 
in this rapidly isolating and fragmenting world, start, let's, go, let's, go against the, let's go against the flow and start pulling together in this sort of stuff. Amen? Amen? All right. We're going to have communion now, and unfortunately we're going to do it the way we've always done it. Um, and, and the reason is because that's just the way we do it. But can I suggest that this morning, just, I can hardly talk about that now and then just whatever. Can we just hang on to it and come back to your seats and we'll take it together? Is, is that okay? We can at least try and do something together in the Middle East. So it's all set at the sides in the back. Go and grab that, come back, and then we'll take communion together.